0: whenever we find ourselves in trouble of any kind, our very first response should be to pray. We serve a God who can be trusted even in the dark. When we can't trace His hand in our circumstances, we can trust His heart.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new six part series titled Prayer for All Seasons. Have you ever heard the phrase overwhelming air hunger? While it may sound strange, it has to do with your body's natural reaction when you hold your breath or stop breathing. Think about it. Breathing is the most important action for the human body. Without it, we perish within minutes. Well, as you'll discover throughout this series in James chapter five, prayer is as important to your spiritual health as air is to your physical health. You absolutely cannot survive spiritually without prayer. And Tom, while James chapter five, verses 13 through 18 can be difficult to understand, It's clear that the theme is about prayer, isn't it?
0: It is, Bill. It's clearly about prayer. Now, you know, I think we have to admit, and if you've read this passage, you understand that, this is a very difficult passage to interpret and to understand. But I think when we've worked our way through it, you'll find that it's one of the richest passages about God's desire to hear our prayers and to respond anywhere in the Scripture. And so I I hope that... As we begin this journey, your own heart will be challenged as mine was with not only the importance of prayer, we all understand that, but the fact that God uses prayer to meet our needs and to accomplish His sovereign will in our lives. Nothing could be more important to our daily existence as believers than prayer.
1: Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now as we join our teacher here on The Word Unleashed.
0: Most of us spend very little time thinking about the one activity that we perform each day that is absolutely essential to life, and that is the activity of breathing. The encyclopedia defines breathing as transporting oxygen into the body and carbon dioxide out of the body, but you spend really no time thinking about this reality. The average adult breathes between 12 to 15 times per minute, or about 20,000 times a day. We normally breathe about 500 to 700 milliliters of air with each breath, amounting to 535 cubic feet a day. Most people only breathe through one nostril at a time, The nostril in use changes every 15 minutes to 3 hours, depending on the individual. There's a little fact you can use over lunch. (laughs) While we can vary the rate of our breathing based on exercise or based on choice, it is impossible for a healthy person to voluntarily stop breathing entirely. If we do not inhale over a period of time, and we all have done this as children or perhaps even as adults for various reasons, carbon dioxide builds up in our blood and we experience what scientists refer to as overwhelming air hunger. This is a reflex that God has built within our bodies, and it's a reflex that's absolutely crucial to human life since without breathing, the body's oxygen level falls to dangerous levels within minutes, leading to permanent brain damage and ultimately to death. It's not surprising then that breath has sometimes been used as a metaphor for life. We'll speak of someone's last breath because that is the most obvious sign that physical life has left the human body. Breathing, I believe, is a powerful illustration of a spiritual reality. What breathing is to our physical bodies, praying is to our souls. We absolutely cannot survive without it. The human body can survive for weeks without food, can survive for days without water, but it can only survive for a few minutes without air. The same is true spiritually when it comes to praying. We absolutely cannot spiritually survive without it. That's the message of James in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Let me read this passage for you that we'll have the opportunity to look at over the next couple of weeks. Verse 13, "...is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray." Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now let me tell you that this is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the entire New Testament. Almost every phrase, especially in verses 14 through 16, can be interpreted in several different ways. And so there are many different views, and we'll deal with the heart of that disagreement next week. But let me tell you that while there is disagreement about this passage, there is almost universal agreement about its theme. The theme of this passage is prayer. In either noun or verb form, the subject of prayer occurs in every verse in the passage I just read for you. Now, why does the topic of prayer come up here at the end of James' letter? Well, let me remind you of the context in which this occurs. You remember several weeks ago, we studied the first six verses of James 5. And in the first six verses, James takes upon himself the role of an Old Testament prophet. And he rebukes the wicked, rich, and powerful of the world who are persecuting these believers who have scattered as a result of the persecution in Jerusalem. And he lets us, as it were, listen in. Then beginning in verse 7 of chapter 5 and down through verse 12, James addresses the brethren again. He addresses us. And he explains to us how it is that we should respond when life just doesn't seem fair. When we are in the middle of injustice. When we are attacked, as these first century Christians were, without justification. Now, you may recall that along with several excellent commentators, I connected verse 12 with the previous paragraph. And I explained it to you this way. In verse 12, as he talks about not swearing with an oath, James is telling us how we should not respond to God when we find ourselves in the middle of injustice. His point is that when we find ourselves being treated unfairly, we are tempted to respond by making rash vows to God. And that is absolutely unacceptable. God does not take it lightly when we take Him lightly. And you can, if you weren't here then, you can listen to that message on the internet and sort of catch up with all that we talked about in verse 12. But now, in verses 13 to 18, James tells us how we should respond to God. We should not make rash vows, bargaining with God, as it were. Instead, we should pour out our hearts to God in prayer. We should seek Him in prayer. Now, this passage breaks into two sections very easily. Verse 13 down through the first part of verse 16, we could call the priority of prayer. And from the middle of verse 16 down through verse 18, we could call the power of prayer. The priority of prayer in the life of the Christian, and then the power of prayer, how God uses it to accomplish great and mighty things. This morning, we're just going to begin to examine the priority of prayer. For the Christian, prayer is absolutely crucial. And prayer is especially important when we find ourselves in the middle of life's troubles and trials. You remember that James began his letter by making that point. In fact, turn back to James chapter 1, verse 5. As he talks about the issue of trials, he says, But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God. And now as he finishes his letter, James returns to this crucial issue of prayer and its importance in the midst of life's trials and troubles. By the way, this is common in many New Testament epistles to conclude the letter with a call to prayer. Let me show you just one example. Turn to Romans chapter 15. In Romans chapter 15 and... Verse 30, Paul concludes by saying, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Here, at the end of Romans, he appeals for them to pray for Him. In other books, as he concludes them, he simply appeals for them as believers to be devoted to personal prayer. You see this in at the end of Ephesians, at the end of the letter to the Philippians, the end of the letter to the Colossians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and even in a non-Pauline letter like the letter of Hebrews, he also, the writer of Hebrews, concludes with a call to prayer in Hebrews 13. Now, why is it that prayer deserves such a high priority in the lives of believers? It is, as I explained to you just a few moments ago, because prayer is so crucial to our life as believers. Prayer is to our Christian life what breathing is to the physical life. Augustine, who wrote that classic in his Confessions, and by the way, I urge you to read it. It's really the story of God's remarkable conversion of this man, Augustine, and he obviously it was not a perfect man. His theology is not completely in full agreement with what we believe the Scriptures teach. But when it comes to the issue of prayer, Augustine understood the importance of prayer. In fact, his Confessions is nothing more than a 300-and-something page prayer to God as he recites his biography, if you will, to God. And he wrote this of prayer. He said, Prayer is the protection of holy souls, a consolation for the guardian angel, an insupportable torment to the devil, a most acceptable homage to God, the best and most perfect praise, the greatest honor and glory, the preserver of spiritual health. It is the column of all virtues, a ladder to God, the fountain of faith. Martin Luther says, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. Nothing is more foundational to the Christian faith than the place and priority of prayer. Now notice in verse 13, James tells us that we are to pray in all seasons and circumstances of life. He begins, verse 13, "...is anyone among you suffering?" The Greek word for suffering can refer to persecution for the faith. In fact, the same basic word is used up in verse 10, describing the suffering of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. It's also used in 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 9, and 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, and it's translated to endure or suffer hardship. So it can relate to persecution for the faith, but we should not restrict it to persecution. In fact, this word suffering is a general word that literally means to suffer evil, it has the sense of experiencing difficulty. Alec Motyer, an excellent commentator on the book of James, writes. It is any ill circumstance which may come upon us, any trial, anything of which we are an onlooking friend might say, that's bad. So anything that you and I would point to and say, that is bad, is encompassed in this word, suffering. We could translate it in English this way, is anyone among you in trouble? That's very similar to how this Greek word is used. It includes physical illness, financial problems, marriage issues, pressures and setbacks at work, family struggles, persecution, loneliness, the death of someone we love, all the way to the daily pressures of work and family and marriage and of life here in the world. Let me ask you this morning, do you find yourself in trouble? Are there circumstances in your life that are pressuring you, that are weighing you down? Is your spirit crushed beneath a load of difficulty and hardship? Are you discouraged? Are you despondent? Are you worried about the future? Do you wonder how it is you're going to be able to accomplish all that's required of you? Have recent trials left you stripped of all of your joy and spiritual energy? If so, how should you respond? Well, James tells you what you must do. Look at verse 13 again. He says, Is anyone suffering? Then he must pray. D. Edmund Hebert writes, Instead of indulging in introspective self-pity or complaining loudly to others of his terrible situation, let him turn to God for refuge and strength. The Greek word here that's translated pray in verse 13 is the most common Greek word in the New Testament for prayer, it's used some 80 times to describe prayer. Do you notice in this verse that James doesn't tell us what to pray for? He doesn't tell us what the content of our prayer should be. We may want to pray that the trial would be removed. God, take away this trouble, this trial that I'm facing. That's certainly appropriate to pray. Over and over again, God invites us to call on Him to remove the trial. Psalm 50, verse 15, Call upon Me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor Me. Psalm 91, verse 15, He will call upon Me, and I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will rescue Him and honor Him. Psalm 107, verse 6, Then they cried out to the Lord, those who found themselves in terrible spiritual distress. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distresses. It's okay to cry out to God to remove the trouble. Paul certainly prayed like that. Turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In the first few verses of 2 Corinthians 12, Paul gives us a sort of autobiographical account of, that's autobiographical, I should say, account of what happened to him as he had the opportunity to be taken, as it were, in a vision to the presence of God. And as a result of that, verse 7 says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over the issue of exactly what was Paul's thorn in the flesh. Truth is, he doesn't tell us. The most common explanation is that it had to do with a physical ailment, perhaps his eyes, because at the end of Galatians, he says, see what large letters I have written to you. He means by that physically large uh, letters of the alphabet. So we may surmise that he had some serious physical problem. That may be his thorn in the flesh. Others have conjectured that perhaps it was a person, maybe one of the false teachers there in Corinth who was demeaning uh, Paul and trying to undermine his ministry. We don't know. We don't know for sure what this thorn in the flesh was. But don't miss the point. Look at the next verse, verse 8. Concerning this, whatever it was, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Paul says, I ask God to take it away. It's okay to pray for God to take it away. And the Lord may choose to remove the trial, or He may choose to give you the same answer He gave Paul. Look at verse 9. And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for My power is perfected in your weakness. It's okay to pray that God will remove the trouble, but God in his own wise providence may choose not to do that and you and I have to trust him to do what's right. But James doesn't want us just to remove just to pray rather that the trial would be removed. James is concerned that we would pray for something else. Turn back again to James chapter 1 verse 5. I commented on this verse earlier, but I want to remind you Of this verse in its context You remember we studied this at length Verse 5 appears in the middle of a paragraph About the various trials That you and I face and encounter In life And he says if in the middle of those trials Verse 5 Any of you lacks wisdom Now the construction here in the Greek text Does not imply That there are some who lack wisdom And there are others who don't Which is the impression you could get From the English text Instead, the implication in the Greek text is, if any of you lacks wisdom, and you all do, then let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, why is it that we need wisdom in the midst of trials? This is what we ought to be praying for and about. What is it that we need wisdom for in the middle of our trials? The wisdom we need in the midst of trials is, is we need the wisdom to see our trials as a source of joy, because that's what he's admonished us to do back in verse 2, consider it all joy. That doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally to us to look at our difficulties and say, oh, I can rejoice in that. We need God's wisdom to be able to see it as joy, not to be masochistic and to enjoy the trial, but rather to see the outcome and rejoice in that, to see that, by going through this trial, we build spiritual strength and endurance. We also need wisdom in the midst of our trials to know how to respond in a godly way. Pray for wisdom. So whenever we find ourselves in trouble of any kind, our very first response should be to pray. We serve a God who can be trusted even in the dark. When we can't trace His hand in our circumstances, we can trust His heart. But there's a second season or circumstance that James says calls for prayer. Not only suffering, but notice the second part of verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Now the Greek word translated cheerful literally means to be in good heart or soul. It's used only four other times in the New Testament. Three of those times it occurs In Acts 27, where Paul is urging those men who are on that ship that's about to shipwreck with him, that's been caught in a storm for two weeks, he urges them to be cheerful, be encouraged. So being cheerful, this is important for you to understand, is not describing happy circumstances. The circumstances on on board that ship in Acts 27 were not happy circumstances. But Paul says even in the midst of that, we can be filled with joy. It's a deep sense of joy in spite of circumstances. You can be cheerful in this sense when everything's going wonderfully, and you can also be cheerful when everything is in difficulty and trouble. Let me ask you this morning, are you cheerful today? Is your perspective about your life, whatever your circumstances, one of deep, inner joy? Then here's how you're to respond. Look at verse 13. He is to sing praises. We get our word psalm from the Greek word translated sing praises. It originally meant to pluck a stringed instrument. And then it came to mean singing and accompanying being accompanied by a stringed instrument, and ultimately it came to refer simply to the singing itself. It doesn't describe a particular kind of music. In other words, God's not telling us here that we have to sing one of the Psalms. Instead, it describes any song of praise to God. This is to be our response. Do you find yourself this morning genuinely filled with a joy? with a deep sense of joy and satisfaction in God's goodness to you and the life He's given to you, then your response should be to flood over with praise to God.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, Prayer for All Seasons. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed.